0: Welcome to the podcast, With All Your Mind, hosted by me, Rachel Grimm. We're here to help understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Hey, good afternoon, guys. This is Rachel, and this is With All Your Mind. We're back after about hmm about a month and a half almost two months of a break yeah it's kind of like I'm talking to old friends that I haven't seen in a while I'm at like a summer barbecue and I'm like hey how's it going (laughs) so yeah it feels a little it feels like a really long time since I've recorded feels like it's been a long time since I've heard from some of you guys by the way you're all doing an awful job of contacting me. Okay, look, I made a Gmail just for you guys to use and guess how many people have used it so far? That's a big fat zero. That's right. Yeah. So some people have told me when they see me in person that it feels like they were already with me because they heard me talking and they're like, oh, it's like I spent time with Rachel. Well, guess what? That's on your end. That's not on my end. To me, it's like I'm talking into the air and I imagine faces, but it's all in my imagination. I don't hear your voices. So please email me, especially if you have any comments, any questions or any um, topics. I am about maybe halfway done doing all the prep work for the fall season. So there's still time to tell me about things that you want to know about um, so I can tweak things. I'm not going to change the whole theme. I'm sticking with the theme, by the way, that I decided on back in April or so. And still not going to tell you because I want to keep it a surprise. I've told a few people, but um, I'm just trusting them to not tell everybody because they don't know you. All right, so here we are. It's summer. It's June. Yeah, I told you guys that I wanted to try some gardening. What I'm learning is that deer and squirrels will not leave your garden alone just because you want them to yeah so I had deer eat off the tips of well I guess I should tell you what I have right my dad and I built a garden bed like a raised garden bed back in April and right now that has in it zucchini and cucumbers uh, like three different kinds of flowers like the kind that keep bugs and stuff away and uh, snow peas snap peas some basil and some carrots and then I have a flower bed that has see some rose bushes that have zero roses on them some gerber daisies that I planted too deep so they're struggling to (laughs) to try and do something but they're like seriously you buried me what am I supposed to do so they're not doing so great but I'll know for next year and then I planted four fruit trees a nectarine tree he's doing pretty good his name is, what's his name? I think his name is John. And then a Fuji apple tree. I think his name is James. He, hey, if you know anything about Fuji apple trees, contact me because this guy is like the softest wood is like totally floppy. I have him staked up in one direction, but now he's like leaning in another direction. So I'm going to have to stake him up in two different sides. It's This guy cannot even handle water on its leaves, and then the whole branch just like droops down. I'm like, is this normal? I don't know if this is normal. And you know, if you Google anything about anything, you get 500 different stories. So um, yeah, I haven't bothered. And then I have two Honeycrisp apple trees, and they're doing pretty good, except that apparently deer like the fresh new growth on Honeycrisp apple trees because they have nibbled off all the ends of every branch on these poor little trees and they're tiny and spindly and little so they they can't afford it like they're babies so we'll see what happens with them they're they're pretty healthy otherwise the bugs leave them alone the bugs do not care about honeycrisp apple trees they love the nectarine tree um I don't know that guy's bushy though he needs a haircut all right so that's what's going on with me Oh, and I had strawberries too, but the deer and the squirrels both love strawberries, so they are not doing so great. Yeah, so other things we've been doing, we picked strawberries, I made strawberry jam, uh, we went to an outdoor, like a wildlife zoo, where you just walk around and it feels like you're in a park, if you're around here, we went to Lake Tobias, What I want to do, I have a friend in Philly that I really want to go visit at the end of the summer. I would really love to go to a real actual beach. We are landlocked in Pennsylvania, and the beach that we have gone to is a lake beach, which means it's cold and not at all beach-like. So that's all we've done with beaches so far. Okay, what are we doing here? We are going to talk about linguistics, right? I told you guys that I wanted to talk about like languagey stuff over the summer. My plan is I have notes, I have stuff here (laughs) to talk about. I don't know if it's going to take up two or three podcasts. I'm going to stop at some point (laughs) and we'll see how much we have and if it's worth one or two more podcasts worth. It's way too much just for one podcast, but I don't know if it's two or three. So we'll see. And then the final one that I'm going to do, so number three or four during the summer here, is kind of like a book review. I'll tell you guys all the books that I've been reading for the past year or so and let you know anything that stood out to me as being really worthwhile, especially if you're interested in a certain topic or another. So that might be a really good one to contact me about is if there's a topic that I've talked about that you really would like a book recommendation for, let me know because that's what I'm going to do. It's probably going to be the first or second week in August that I'm going to put that podcast up about books. Anything that I have found really interesting or really helpful, I'll talk about that in that podcast. So what are we doing now? Linguisticy stuff, language-y stuff? I really wasn't sure where to take it because what I first wanted to talk about was how English looks really butchered up, right? It's spelling where we have K N S for knife and things like that. And then I'm sure you've all seen the um, Facebook posts where they um, substitute different spellings for different words. And it's like, here's how you spell fish. And it, goes through this whole story. So I'm sure we all have those pet peeves about how English is spelled or maybe even how your name is spelled. Like, have you ever wondered why John is spelled J-O-H-N, right? So these kinds of weird quirkinesses of English that used to make me hate English. I I thought it was a jerk of a language. Um, So I was gonna talk about spelling, English spelling, and where it came from and why. Uh, and so I thought it would be like a really easy podcast to record. And then I was like, quality control, got to fact check myself. So I read a whole book in order to just fact check myself. And it was written by this linguist. And she's like deep into phonology and giving you the, oh my goodness, it was, it was deep. Um so I did that, but now I feel much more confident about what I'm going to tell you in these next couple of podcasts and have much cooler information than I thought I would have. So, I guess that's a good thing. So now it's not going to be quite so quick and simple and easy as it was going to be. It's a little bit more. So hopefully that's a good thing for you. If you don't like linguistics or language stuff, try it out. See what you think. And if you're just like no, absolutely not, I understand. I won't hold it against you, okay? So what we're going to talk about is the history of written language because it helps to explain modern English and it gives a lot of background about printed language, which is important to understand the printed Bible no matter what language you read it in. So the history of English and of written language. I'm, I'm not going to go into a deep dive of the history of English like... Um, when I was reading this book, they talked about the Great Vowel Shift. The Great Vowel Shift. Have you ever heard of this? I know some English teachers out there will have. Other than that, I I was just like, I know I've heard of that somewhere, but I have no clue what it really is. I'm not that kind of nerd. Okay, I'm not an English as an English history, <laughs> like British English history nerd, and like. Chaucer and Beowulf and stuff like that yeah I don't I don't know so much about that stuff but we're going to talk about written language and just language in general which I do love to get nerdy about. I'll give you some broad ideas of why English looks (laughs) so horrible why you can't just look at it and know how to pronounce it We'll break down these ideas as we talk through all of them. They're all kind of intertwined and kind of depend on each other and bleed over into each other. So we'll kind of just tease it all out as we go. But four big ideas that play into why English is the way it is today. So big idea number one, the English alphabet was not made for English. And this may be like a mind, like, whoa, really? Or you might be thinking, well, obviously, duh. But the English alphabet was not made for English. What we should technically be calling it is the Roman alphabet, because that's who spread it the most, the Romans. But it goes back even further than that. So that's big idea number one. Big idea number two, written language, not spoken language, written language is often not at all innovative. It's usually very traditional and very hard to change. Now you might be thinking, well, but what about slang and all that? I'm talking specifically about written language. Okay, big idea number three. Now this one was mind blowing to me. I had to think about it for a while. Writing and written language are not language itself. Written language is not language. It's an invention that is applied to language. Writing is an invention applied to language. Big idea number four, politics, political lines, political correctness, and cultural standards have all played into language an incredible amount, right? So these ideas overlap a lot, and we'll just talk our way through a bunch of stuff and then summarize it again at the end so you can see clearly how we answer these things and how we talked about these things, okay? So we're going to talk first about the history of the English alphabet since that'll kind of give us a case study for how to talk about everything else. So first thing I want you to do is think of the word alphabet. (laughs) What does that mean to you? What do you think of? If you're like me, what I immediately thought of was A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and I just thought of the song and I thought of the letters that go along with that song. So clearly, I automatically thought of the English alphabet. I didn't realize that when we say alphabet, we mean a very particular kind of writing system, because not everybody has an alphabet. They might have a different kind of writing system. So the technical definition of an alphabet is letters or symbols that stand for a sound or if you want to get real technical a phoneme a phoneme is one particular sound so the word uh i'm looking at a diaper box right now so i'm gonna use words off of the diaper box baby right baby that doesn't have one sound in it it has b a b e it has four sounds in it So one phoneme is one sound. B, B, B is B, that is one phoneme. And then the B is the symbol used for that sound or phoneme. Different languages count and have different things that they consider phonemes, right? In one language you have a sound that a different language does not have. B is a pretty universal sound. Most languages have the B sound. But not all languages have the ZH sound or the CH sound, and we'll talk about that later. So alphabets are systems to represent these sounds, but they don't always do it perfectly. In fact, they very often don't do it perfectly. So does English have the ZH sound? Off the top of your head, you might say no. Well, think about it. We don't have an alphabet letter to represent that sound but yeah we do have that sound does english have the sound kh as in Bach Bach like the musical composer Bach Bach no we don't have that sound and we don't have a letter for it so a phoneme is a sound and a letter an alphabetic letter represents that sound or phoneme. So there are other systems. And you might be wondering now, okay, what are those other systems? One of the ones that I always keep in mind, because when I learned about it, I was like, that is so cool and such a good idea. Syllabaries. Syllabaries are not alphabets. They have letters or symbols that are syllables. My favorite example is Japanese. So the Japanese characters, they're writing, and they have three different systems. So two out of three are syllabaries. Hiragana, if you're familiar, hiragana and katakana are both syllabaries. That means that each symbol represents one syllable. So in English, we kind of cheat. We say a B C D, we give our letters names because we don't really want to say A B C D E F G H I J K L. right? That's how we would be doing it if we were just saying the sound. We don't say the sound, we say the name of the letter. So with that, we turn it into a syllable. But in Japanese, they're like, it's impossible to say a sound without giving it a vowel sound. So you know what? We're just going to make it into syllables. So they don't have K. They have ka, ke, ki, ko, ku. Those are five different syllables. Five different characters. Ba, be, bi, bo, bu. Five different characters for five different syllables. So when you see Japanese hiragana or katakana, you know exactly how it's pronounced because the character tells you exactly how to pronounce it. Syllabaries, they're genius. I love them. Why don't we why don't we use one? Well, it would be easier if we actually said our letters the way that they were pronounced and they always stayed that way. That's the problem with alphabets. Okay? Another system so we have alphabets, that's one letter for one sound, one phoneme. Syllabaries are systems for syllables, ba, be, bi, bo, And then logo syllabaries, these are ancient systems. There are no modern languages that I know of that still use a logo syllabary, um, except for Chinese. Chinese has a logo syllabary. It's a mixed system, but you might be able to think of it as simply hieroglyphics or cuneiform using symbols that usually look like something and that tells you what it means. So, A tree symbol meaning tree. A house symbol meaning house. Uh, a dog symbol meaning dog. Those are logo syllabary systems. They're pretty rare anymore. Like I said, Chinese is a mixed system. They use characters that tell you a whole idea. That's the idea that we have with a logo syllabary. Pretty rare. Most languages, if they are written languages, use an alphabet or a syllabary. So now you have three systems that we can use, right? Alphabet, syllabary, logo syllabary. All of these are scripts. So if you want to be very general, the term you use is script. What script do you use? I use the Chinese script. What script do you use? I use the Japanese script. Very general. We're going back to the alphabet now. What do we need to know about the alphabet? Well, do you notice I'm saying the alphabet? I'm still talking about it like there's only one, but you know there's not one. There's the English alphabet, the French alphabet, the Italian alphabet, the Russian alphabet, the Romanian alphabet, the Ukrainian alphabet. If you've been watching the news or have friends that speak Ukrainian or something like that, you've noticed since the war with Russia and Ukraine, that the Ukrainians have started using their own Ukrainian alphabet much, much more. They used to use the Russian alphabet. It was just easier, probably more computers read it easier, like you you get the the Russian alphabet downloaded to use on your laptop easier in times past. But now they're starting to use the Ukrainian alphabet. It's different. It has fewer Cyrillic characters, and we'll talk about Cyrillic later, and more Roman characters, like English. So it looks different from Russian. So there's a Ukrainian alphabet and a Russian alphabet. And you can still call the Russian script an alphabet because it works the same way, but it's a different script. All right, you see how we're getting a little bit complicated? So what I'm saying is that there's lots of different alphabets, but when we talk about the alphabet, we usually say the alphabet. And I thought that was just a lazy way of talking or something, but through reading this intense book that Ryan recommended to me out of the blue, um, there's actually reason behind it. There's actually logic behind it. So we often talk about the alphabet, but there's hundreds, but they all descended from one great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy alphabet. There was one alphabet that was invented, and all the other alphabets of the entire world come from that first alphabet. Isn't that weird? I totally didn't expect that. I thought, you know, writing, it's so basic. Everybody knows how to do it. There's probably alphabets all over the world that originated on their own and people just, you know, hey, we need writing, let's start writing. And they came up with alphabets, nope. Apparently this is a really hard invention. So let's talk about where the alphabet came from. Well, the Middle East from Phoenicians, mostly true. Okay, I'm not gonna throw all of our history out the window. The Phoenicians were the first one to spread the alphabet that we currently have. It was probably a Canaanite alphabet. It was definitely in the area of the ancient Near East, which I have told you before is the area of Palestine, Israel, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, ancient Near East, Iraq. The alphabet that we have today is a descendant of an original alphabet that came out of the ancient Near East. It was Semitic, and the order that we know for English, A, B, C, that order is used with, you know, minor variations in different languages. In Greek, it's alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon. So four out of five are the exact same letters that we have in the first five of our alphabet. In Hebrew, it's Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, Hey. Three out of five are that order. In a lot of languages, that's the order we have. And that's part of what helped it to spread so easily was that people had an order for it. It wasn't just like this pile, like imagine uh, Bananagrams or Scrabble where you just have a pile of letters. There was an order to it. It was A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and on. And that helped it to spread, and people kept that order. It helped people to learn it. It helped them to know what to expect. It allowed for inventory and databasing. So um, an interesting story that I read, archaeologically where the alphabet was found in the order that we have it today is in a place that we've mentioned before on this podcast. If you listen, season one, episode one, We mentioned a fatherly type god that might be where we get the idea of a grandfatherly god with a white beard and kind of looks like Santa Claus, and he was from Ugarit. Do you remember this? Anybody remember this? That's the same place that we have the first archaeological record of an alphabet in the order that we still generally use it, Ugarit. So it's an important place for a lot of different reasons. I had no clue about the language part. Okay, so the alphabet, the great-granddaddy, or one of the like daughter languages and daughter alphabets that we have from the great-granddaddy language was found in Ugarit. And they were like, hey, it's not only related to our alphabet, it's also in the ABC order. Wow. And that was the first time they found that. And the time that that was written, they dated it. And that was about 1400 BC. What was happening in the nation of Israel at that time? That was about the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac was having twins. Jacob was tricking his twin brother. It might've been a little bit later when Israel was in Egypt. So the great granddaddy of our modern alphabet was already written down in the order that we know it today in the city of Ugarit in what is now Syria in the time where Jacob and Esau were running around trying to trick each other out of everything. That's our alphabet. It's that old, okay? And the order that we know it is that old. We also know that our alphabet with the great granddaddy language is just an imaginary language basically because we don't know what it was or where exactly it was. They're guessing that it was invented around 1700 BC. 1700 BC. That's back in the time of, let me think, maybe Job. We don't know exactly when he was, but maybe the time of Job a long time ago. But other writing in the Middle East goes back much further. There's clay tablets that have cuneiform from about 3000 BC. So writing is pretty old news in the Mesopotamian area, in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East. But our alphabet the granddaddy of alphabets was probably invented in the 1700s BC in or near Palestine. Our alphabet is this des- descendant from a Palestinian alphabet, and I'm using Palestine, that word, to define an area, not a political entity. So to summarize, there was a daddy language that some cool genius invented an alphabet for, and then it helped to create the Phoenician hebrew and arabic scripts which are the oldest alphabets in the world not the oldest scripts the oldest scripts are cuneiform and hieroglyphics in egypt and sumeria and then chinese characters and mayan glyphs run close seconds to that they're very old as well and by the way this is something else that i learned that i had no clue about The world and science are still discovering and learning a lot about ancient writing. It was only starting in the 20th century that Mayan glyphs were starting to get translated. And there was a bunch of ancient writing that was discovered in the 1900s. I mentioned to you guys in the first episode as well about how there was a lot of Greek manuscripts discovered in the late late 19th century, early 20th century. So like 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, right around there. So a lot of stuff has only been recently discovered. Dead Sea Scrolls, first discovered in 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, they found even more caves that had uh, parchments in it, even into the late 1950s. And by the way, the documents, the manuscripts that were discovered in the Dead Sea Caves are the oldest Bible manuscripts that we have by far. So, archaeology is still showing us new things. History is not old and dusty. It's still getting updated. So, don't be too surprised when you see a magazine article or a newspaper article or something and it's talking about, oh, we discovered this and this might mean uh, we have a new understanding about this other thing concerning the Bible. Don't get freaked out about that because it's okay. We're learning, we're still learning. The Bible is not this closed subject that we will never learn anything new about ever. That's not true. We're still learning more things about it. That doesn't disrupt God's sovereignty or the validity of his word, okay? The Bible is still true. Our understanding of it is growing. We can be stupid (laughs) and the Bible is still okay. There's no problem there. Here's another big takeaway from all of this is that we, as modern people living in the what century are we in? Twenty twenty, twenty first century. We take writing and literacy for granted. Everyone knows how to read, or at least most people do. And if you don't, it's kind of like a secret, or you have major intellectual, or uh, developmental, or educational problems that just keep you from it, and blah blah blah. So we take for granted literacy it's so normal ancient cultures did not take it for granted at all it was a surprise if you were literate it was a special feature if you were literate it defined your profession if you were literate even in jesus day not everyone was literate not by a long shot why not you might think like it, you know it's writing it's totally accessible anybody can learn how to do it well, not, not so much <laughs> in ancient times. You needed the time to learn. You needed somebody to learn from. You needed materials to learn with. There's only so much writing in the dirt that you can do. I mean, you can learn letters by writing in the dirt. You need something to write on and a utensil, a, a tool to write with in order to learn how to write more than a letter at a time. You would also need a reason to learn. It would take a lot of motivation and time and patience and resources to learn. People weren't going to invest in that for no good reason, all right? It's just like today. You don't get a college degree without having a purpose in mind that you were going to use it for and earn your money back. Here's another thing. Not all languages had a written form. We take for granted that in Palestine, in the area around Israel, in the ancient Near East, there was a lot of literacy because there was a lot of written languages. But if you moved into barbarian Europe, guess how many written languages there were in the time of Jesus? Greek, maybe Latin. That's about it. The alphabet traveled out of the ancient Near East to other parts of the world. Do you know any ancient forms of writing that were in Europe? Think about ancient forms of writing. You can think about Chinese, Mayan, uh, cuneiform, hieroglyphics. None of those are in Europe. Europe was not a literate society before Christianity came in. Christianity had a major influence on literacy in the ancient world. Okay, So you needed to have so many different factors in play in order to be literate. Your language needed to have a written form, first of all. Second, you needed time to learn, materials to learn with, somebody to learn from, and a reason to learn, which usually meant having a trade that needed you to be literate. You needed to be a scribe or a business person writing down receipts or inventory It was not for everybody. A farmer did not necessarily need to learn how to read and write. So there were five written languages just in the area of Palestine by 1000 BC. By contrast, Slavic people, those were the um, predecessors of Russians, Ukrainians, Polish, these kinds of people. Slavic people didn't have a written language until at least 400 AD. Russians specifically, not until 900 AD. Um, Japanese didn't have one until about 300 AD and Koreans didn't have their own script until 1200 AD. They both, Japanese and Koreans, used Chinese before that, but they did not have their own script until 300 AD and 1200 AD respectively. So we, we, before we can even start thinking about how our alphabet looks, we need to remember that literacy alone was not a ri- widespread thing in the ancient world. So I'm going to stop there uh, and we'll continue on and I think two weeks, I'm going to drop one of these every two weeks until we get through them all. So in two weeks we're going to continue on and next we're going to talk about the history of the alphabet again but now specifically talking about different letters in the alphabet and why we have these and why we don't have that and we're going to talk about what phonemes, what sounds do we have in English? and things like that. Okay, so I hope you're enjoying. I know this is off the beaten track for what we usually do, uh, but it's good stuff and it'll actually play into the fall's theme of the podcast. All right, so hang in there. I hope you guys are having a great start to the summer and I'll see you in a few weeks. All right, have a good one. Bye-bye.